Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Ardman Animation's co-founder Peter Lord, animator, director, and producer on a number of beloved works, including the creation of Morph, one of my favorites, and writing and co-directing Chicken Run and directing Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I should mention, uh, listeners, we've actually, this is the first in-person recording we've done since the pandemic started. Uh, and it's an honor. I'm actually in the uh, in the belly of Ardman Animation's uh, studio here in Bristol, my hometown, uh, with Pete. So it's, uh, it's a real honor. Thanks very much for welcoming me to this wonderful place. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of it. Nice, nice to... See you, so let's see people here as well, yeah. We love all films, especially films that are under 90 minutes long. That's our remit. We've actually had an Ardman Animations uh, film on the show, something that you were very heavily involved in, Chicken Run. Oh, yeah. An actor called Griffin Newman picked it from, from New York. Big fan. Good man. Yes, good. I'm, I'm pleased. Yes, right. Of course I'm pleased. Yeah, yeah. It's, that film had a huge impact. What I love about Ardman is, you know, you're, you're very much in the feature film world now and you have been for so many years, but of course you started out making shorts and as a under 90 minute podcast, the shorter, the better, you yeah. know, and, and I'm always <laughs> impressed when, when a, an artist or a filmmaker can tell a story, you know, a compelling story in, in a minute, mm. in two minutes, in yeah. five minutes. I feel like that's a particular skill. Mm. How did you, I guess, expand into, into the feature film? Because you've been, for so many years, you were telling great stories in you know, 30 seconds or yeah, a minute, two minutes. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So our first ever gig, Dave, Dave and mine, was... In the uh, very early 70s, I think. Yeah, the early 70s. And we were, there was a, a television program called Vision On. Um, extremely older, older listeners will recognize it. And it was designed for children who were deaf and hard of hearing. So it was entirely visual. You know, they talk about the black and white era, I think, actually. And we, by good timing, a little bit of nepotism <laughs> and, and um, enterprise, got a... That's where we got our foothold in the business. And for over three series, I think, we gave them 30-second films, each one different, different new, new characters, new setting, uh, but all animated with modelling clay, which was our thing. Um, God, I bet they look terrible now. I mean, I bet they're really, <laughs> really, really bad. But the reason I mention it is that was the start of training in storytelling, mm. storytelling, you know, which is what it's all about, isn't it? The the thirty second story, you know, it, it needs you know it needs a setup, it needs a setup and, and development and the punchline if nothing if nothing else. Uh, so so when it opens, you know where you are, you know, and then something interesting and diverting happens, and then it res, re, resolves in the punchline, and and uh, that's good discipline. And we took that into morph, I think, mm. basically the same pattern, because again they were short sequences. We never. Um, went to film school or animation school. So in that sense, we were self-taught. And I think that was where we got self-taught was in over those years, although we still had plenty to learn. And so more films started out at, three, at a minute long or so on. And then we jumped to five-minute stories. And, and then we found there were, you needed more. Of course, you needed, needed more. 
quite separately, there's a separate strand to our career that most people don't really know about, that we made a series of films based on real soundtracks. And when I say real soundtracks, I, what I mean is that they were recorded naturally. They weren't scripted. They were eavesdroppings, actually. Sometimes, in the, in the purest examples, we literally hid a microphone somewhere and recorded people talking and then made a film out of that. Wow. That proves to be spectacularly inefficient because <laughs> you, 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 know, you could record forever and get nothing or else... Or else I mean, it wasn't, we weren't totally sneaky. Somebody, you know, we, we'd asked. Mm. <laughs> but sometimes someone would spot the microphone and say, what the hell's that thing? And, and that, would, that would be an end to that conversation. So anyway, but the point being, anyway, the point being, that was a very interesting discipline because you weren't given a script. I mean, you, there was no script. Um, that you were given this raw material and then you had to edit it and sculpt a script out of sound or a story, you know, a narrative probably, you know. For example, for example, we recorded one at a, a listings magazine that was in Bristol back in the day uh, and there was about six or eight people in a room we could run to two microphones, so two people had radio mics on. And when they spoke, we could hear them very clearly. If they spoke to somebody else, we could hear the other person very clearly. But if they wandered across the room, we'd lose half the conversation. You know? And, you know, and uh, and the day passed, or probably in truth, three hours passed, and there was nothing happened, <laughs> really, <laughs> really. And so what we did, what we what we tried to do with with partial success... When I say sculpt the story, we said, okay, nothing's happened, so let's make that a virtue. So we tried to say that that three hours was actually about 15 hours. It started the day early, they ended at midnight, and they still hadn't resolved anything. So that's so we took the raw material, and by changing the time of day and through the lighting and various things, we managed to suggest passing of time. So that was an interesting discipline. But then still, that five minutes, and so five minutes was our thing. And then really, Nick came along with Grand Day Out, which was sort of was twenty odd minutes, I think. And you know, he's he's, he's a great storyteller, so it, it held up held up really well. Mm. I tell you, I'll tell you an interesting thing about Grand Day Out. <laughs> Here you go, um, which interests me greatly is that at the end they they fly off back home, and the gas cooker of course, um, is left on the moon skiing. Now, when I think about it, that's a pretty weird story, isn't it? That, 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 <laughs> that, that, that the cash cooker that's, for some reason, is on the moon, some unexpected reason, is on the moon. But anyway, that's what, that was it. That's what happened. And, you know, it's very, it's lovely, isn't it? It's very, very pleasing. And there's a shot of it zooming up and down the slope, skiing. Yeah. Um, and we discussed, here's the thing, we discussed, all right, one sound effect would mean that his money ran out and he was stuck again. So one clunk and and the skiing sound would stop. And you could have put that on at the end, you, you know, which would be an adult thing to do, a, a, a sort of, you know, sweet and sour e ending, you know, which, which would get a laugh, I think, but but a kind... But... but uh, <laughs> A laugh with accompanied, accompanied by by sadness when you thought about it. So so anyway, that's just in, just interesting to say how that choice was. I mean, I, I probably I'm saying this probably Nick never 
<laughs> Never really wanted to do it, but it, but it was it was discussed. It was possible. You know, it's interesting. What, it's interesting what you could do. Totally changed the meaning of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's yeah. remarkable. And actually, just talking about now, it's quite bleak, quite yeah. sad. <laughs> sad for the gas cooker <laughs> from the moon. Very sad for the gas cooker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although, how long it had been there before when it was brought to life, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not explained. Oh, I do. I do love those films, and all you know, all four of the Wallace and Gromit films are all under, very much under, uh, under ninety minutes, and uh, of course, got a wonderful feature as well. I think for for listeners listening to this. You know, we're recording this in at the end of 2021. A lot of listeners have probably seen the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, mm. which of course has a little <laughs> Wallace and Gromit, well, a little Feathers McGraw cameo uh, from the wrong trousers. Yeah. Uh, how, how did that come about? Well, I don't know. I'm sure I'd say I don't know. I'm, I'm, I rem- all I remember is the emails. Ah, right. I remember <laughs> the emails flying and, you know, some... Some voices were saying, "Oh, isn't isn't it rather a dark scene? Isn't 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 the, is is somebody killed?" And, you know, well, yeah, somebody's a bit killed, but <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but it's not associated with Wallace and Gromit in any way. So we were delighted with it. Yeah, yeah, delighted. <laughs> of course, delighted. Yeah, a lo- lovely little mini tribute there. Again, back to Nick. You know, his visual humour is absolutely universal. Work anywhere anywhere in the world. But other things, the the the, the references, you know, British accents and. British sensibility. So, yeah, very proud of that. Uh, I think it's great, you know, hearing uh, Yorkshire accents and different accents from across the UK uh, in these big films that travel so well, you know, and, and they do have a big international audience. Yeah. And then also films with no voices at all, like Shaun the Sheep, which has yeah. got a big big fan base across the world. And, yeah. uh, and, and the great thing about that is, you know, people of any age can enjoy Timmy Time and Shaun the Sheep. And I was lucky enough to go on a, on a set visit to the uh, Aztec West uh, studio when Shaun the, the first Shaun the Sheep movie was being yeah. made and, you know, blew my mind. But it sort of made me think about, obviously, there's this... It's the modern silent comedy. It's the modern Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the timing and the gags and, and how those stories are told. Yes, that was, that was, I mean, that's interesting as well, you know, because, I mean, the Shaun the Sheep story is a really lovely one because, as you know, Shaun himself appears in a close shave and, and he's just a walk-on part, you know, film done, joke done, move on. We didn't think about it for years and years. And then somebody, I don't even know who, came up with the idea of maybe we could make a... We could try making a series with Shaun the Sheep. And, of course, he had no character and he had no context, really, so anything was up for grabs. And we we discussed various options. And then a guy, our man, Richard Starzak, who was the, the genius behind Rex the Runt, he came out, he came out with this idea for for what we've got, which which was a, a farm setting, which, you know, now it seems, of course, of course a sheep lives on a farm, but he but didn't before. Incredibly dense farmer that never knows what's going on, you know, kind of based on the sort of Larson cartoon, actually, and the the hapless dog, you know, and um, quickly and easily it was decided for the first series, which was ages ago now, that there would be no dialogue. That was an easy easy choice to make. But then to take that into a feature film was was not an easy choice. Or well, it wasn't obvious. You know, it wasn't obvious. You could tell a story without any dialogue, uh, an eighty-minute story or whatever it is. But they did. You know, um, Richard you know, took it took it on and made it happen. You know, working again, working with good writers. And I'm you know, I'm really proud of them. It's great because because on the one hand, you know, yes. Smashing it, you can sell it anywhere in the world. Yes, that's good, you know. But also, it's quite an achievement. You know, it's quite an achievement to sustain a story with with emotion, with a, with an with an arc, with development, with 
character without any dialogue at all. It's quite a challenge. The purpose of this podcast is to curate the ultimate oh, oh, yes. under 90 minute film list for people watching along at home. I think having you on the podcast, Pete, is fantastic because you yourself have made so many great under 90 minute films. You're an authority on this subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, so I'd, I'd love to know what film you've brought to our little party uh, here, the jamboree of under 90 minute films. Yeah, good. OK, well, I've I fought along, he says, looking at the DVD. It's something, I mean, self-consciously quirky in a way. Which is to say that I love stories, storytelling, character, comedy. And to me, I always, th- I always think that what we do at Art Man, the number one is storytelling, most important thing. Number two is filmmaking. And animation is like a third of the importance, you know, but storytelling is everything. Now, I say that, and the film I'm about to recommend, Storytelling is not its strong suit. I, I, won't, I won't pretend it is. It's, it's not. It's not. It has a story, of course, but it's quirky and um, it's bloody marvellous is what it is. The, the DVD I'm looking at is called, it's in French, it's called Fetiche 33 Stroke 12. Now that's a hell of a name for a film. Fetiche 33 Stroke 12. It's by Ladislas Starovich. It's often called The Mascot. If you search for it, you'll probably find it called the mascot most most easily. But this copy in my hand, the one that, and you've seen this, Fetish thirty three twelve, is a restored version. Is what it is. So this is from the thirty three. It's because it's made in nineteen thirty three. The story is very simple. There's a live, live action sort of bracket to the story in the middle. And, in, and the live-action bracket is is r- rather charming and quite uh, old-fashioned, tradi- traditional in style. You, we're in a very poor flat, a poor apartment. There is a sick child in bed, and the sick child's mother, to make money, she sews dolls. She makes dolls. And she's... You know, she's worn out, she's exhausted, she's working by candlelight. Uh, the, the child is ill and she's toiling away and she's, she's sad and she, she makes these toys. And then in a great, a great film moment, she sheds a tear and the tear falls into the stuffing of the doll and becomes like a heart. So the doll, one of the dolls comes to life. And that, that doll that comes to life is a little dog, a very acute little... It's a wonderful puppet. Dog, yeah, very pu- beautiful yeah. puppet. And, and I, think, I think the story, it's really hard to tell, but I'll tell what the story is, but I think, <laughs> but I think basically the whole story is, is that dog wants to bring an orange to the little girl that's ill in bed because she's got fever or something like that, you know, and she's, she doesn't look at all well. Uh, and indeed, when she... Well, I can spoil the alert. She, she, the dog does bring the orange, and when it does, it's really nice. It's a lovely moment. You know, mm. It's a good moment, and and you almost feel how important that that orange is. You can feel it, so that's good. So, uh, and, and in between, the, the dog goes on a surreal adventure, absolutely surreal. And this is why I wanted to mention it really. And I'm going to stop myself and just say historical, interesting sideline that I saw it first on TV a little clip there was a a rock music show called the old grey whistle test back in the day I mean back in this is the 70s I suppose yeah it must be the 70s and they sometimes acquired weird bits of old film and put them to rock tracks I think is what happened you know so in that context I saw a bit of this and thought bloody hell you know, wow, what's that? <laughs> and many years later found out what it was, right? Okay. 
there's scenes in the streets of Paris, which actually, some of them are brilliant, actually. Some, some of them are rather primitive and unconvincing, but the dog, the dog is kind of loose in the streets of Paris with a bunch of other puppets as well. Uh, and it sort of culminates as night falls. There's a, there is a, a mad party, a mad cabaret party takes place in the cellar somewhere. And it's also a, as well as being a cabaret party, it is a, a witch's party. So the, devil's, the devil is there with a bunch of witches and, and every sort of extraordinary creature. And they have this mad dance. There's two big things that I would point to about it. One is the sheer visual invention of this mad dance, which is extraordinary. And of the characters, there are characters made of uh, fish bones, made of paper, vegetables, balloons, all kinds of stuff and junk that is assembled and animated very beautifully. So the, the visual invention is, is, is absolutely magnificent. And in the middle of it all, although, as I've suggested, narrative is not its strongest point, there's some great character stuff in there as well. I mean, most memorably, one of the dolls is a... It's, it's, it's a doll of a Parisian street tough, mm-hmm. a tough guy with a roll, a roll neck sweater and a flat cap and a, a cigarette butt in his mouth and the most uh, ugly looking, you know, violent looking brute. Uh, so, but his performance is fantastic, you know, and the dog's performance is, is rather wonderful. So so you are engaged, you you. You are engaged. You're engaged. How on earth is the dog going to get out with this orange from this mayhem it's involved in? But I think the big, the big selling point is 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 the mayhem, the extraordinary invention. It's hard to describe. Most puppet animation now and then is is relatively sort of um, prosaic in a way. Dolls tend to be attractive or pretty, you know. Um, and, but here it's like he's. It's like it's like it's like. Um, a sort of a Hieronymus Bosch painting yes. come yeah, to yeah, life is true. what it's like, and it's uh, it's superb. It's superb. Great music. Great strange music. I can't define what that music is, but there's a recurrent dance theme playing, and they, and these da- these characters dance around and do the most extraordinary things. There's a, for example, in the middle of it all, there's a. I think it's, a, it's like a water jug, I think, or maybe it's a bottle, and. Four glasses that dance around it, and the, so the glasses are, are real glasses, clearly visibly. Mm. So somehow he's fixed on little arms and legs, and they dance round to the music. And every so often they bash their heads against the, the bottle and smash themselves. Yes. So it's like it's like you know, it's a great metaphor for like a self-abusing drunk or something like that. So this was my first time watching the film on your recommendation, and I hope listeners sort of do the same off the back of this. And you're right, it's a wild ride. And but I was I was just thinking about how it was made and when it was made, and and how it really stands up today because it is 
in-camera animation, stop motion, and the live action footage blends in so well, it's so well done. And a nice restoration we get to watch today with no cigarette burns or scratches and, and wobbly frames. You know, it's uh, it really holds up. It's it's quite a feat. You know, this is almost 100 years old coming up to it. It is. You know, yeah. and yeah, uh, it, is, yeah. it, it must be such a... I, I don't know what sort of the animation scene was like uh, at that point in terms of stop motion, but this feels pretty groundbreaking and yeah. it's, uh, oh, must yeah. be a big influence on, on people working today. Is Ladislav Sterovich someone who influenced you? Well, this film did, in the sense that I saw that clip mm. and thought, wow, you know, and, and influenced in the sense of sort of opening wide the doors and saying so much is possible, you mm. know, so much more than we normally consider is possible. You know, that your film language is, you're free. You're free, yes. to, you know, free to go crazy, basically. So he was a real pioneer. The interesting story about his life, I think he's Polish. Mm, Polish, Polish, Russian, I think. Good, thank you. And I'm not good on uh, film history or anything, but I do know that his first efforts, he started out as an insect enthusiast. And what he was trying to do, I believe, was he was trying to film stag beetles fighting. Like, and this is in sort of 1915 or something, or maybe even earlier, a long, long time ago. I think the lights were too hot and they tended to kill the stag beetles, so he didn't get very far. And so what he did was he took the stag beetles dead and just stuck a bit of wire in wow. their joints because when you think about it, they're like, like suits of armour, aren't they? You, know, you can just jam a bit of soft wire into the joints and sort of animate it is what he tried to do. You know, and I believe that's how he kind of got into it. And one of his very early films is called The Cameraman's Revenge, it's called. And that is a very, that is a really bizarre story again. Wow. It's about um, all these very disparate insects. But again, I think they're real. And, and there's sort of some sordid adulterous affair taking place between, the, between <laughs> a beetle and a cricket or something. And, and, and the cameraman is the husband, the husband to the cricket. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a bit bad on insects and details. But uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, a funny comic adult little oh, yeah. little story. And of course, so that again is 1915, 16, 17. I'm, oh, I should have researched this, shouldn't I? But <laughs> it's, it's, it's that sort of period. It's the silent period. People like Starich were inventing this medium, weren't they? They were on their own uh, and and doing amazing things. And really, his he started there. That was I think that was probably in Poland. He went to then he went to Paris, where he's. His career thrived, and he's done a number of um, stories based on fables and things like that, and um, Aesop's fables. They're, they're great, they're lovely, but but fetish is something else again. It's, it's a, you know, absolutely on another plane, I think. Absolutely. So, uh, so when you, you saw the, the clip on, on TV. Do you remember when you saw the sort of full short film? I don't honestly remember when I saw it. Um, it must have been in the 90s somewhere. But then this version, I met. I was very delighted to meet Leona Beatrice Starovich, who is his granddaughter, and and she took take them upon herself to get this, this restoration done. And she's, right. a, she's a big, obviously a passionate advocate of his work. Uh, and she introduced me to this extended version, because this this version is quite a lot longer than the one that most people will see. Yeah, I think the the, the, the 30s one was cut down. Yeah. So they, they shot all of this footage and, and then it was sort of almost cut in half, I think. I think so. And think uh, so. and this one, yeah, is almost 40 minutes long. Yeah. But I still wanted more at the end of it, you know? Now, for any of your, any of your listeners who are um, animation enthusiasts, and technically 
inclined, there's a very interesting technical thing that happens in them, which is the common phrase is go motion. And now in, in stop motion, in stop frame animation, you've got a puppet and you take a frame and you move the puppet, you take a frame and you move the puppet, you take a frame, and so your life passes before you. <laughs> um, and by definition, in that process, whenever you go click and take the frame, and God knows how you do it on a cranked camera, I don't know, but when you go click and take a frame, the puppet is totally static. And so all the lines are still, there's no blur anywhere. In modern days, um, in sort of uh, St Star Wars, um, they found ways to make the puppets blur as the frame is taken, make, it, make the puppet actually move as the frame is taken. And that was a great innovation in the Empire Strikes Back. They did that, wow. they did that. You know. But long, years before that, Stanovich was doing it. And if you look at it, the film carefully, and if you really a bit, you know, obsessed like me. You'll see there are many examples of it where the moving object is is a, a, a blur, a rather handsome blur. And look, look closely, freeze frame, and you'll see, you can see the nylon, the fishing oh, really? line. So oh, he clearly wow. he's attached a fishing line to some part of the body or a figure and as he's taken the frame he's pulled it he's pulled it he's just yank, yanked it so it's it was moving so you get a big blur there's a scene where the devil stands at the front door to his terrible party and all these extraordinary creatures come along and he grabs them and, and throws them between his legs down into the cellar and although all those thrown characters are all blurred he must have just yanked them so that was quite that was quite easy but then there's a great moment when the Parisian street tough stabs the devil in the belly with a great knife, you know, which is pretty ballsy, really. <laughs> and and, and, and he, he produced this knife from somewhere. And as the knife strikes, it's just a great big blur. He must have... He's done it well, because what's, what might happen is you pull the string and the whole puppet falls over, or, you know, or, or the wrong thing moves. So he must have... Yes, he must have made it accurately enough to be sure that the only thing that would move would be the shoulder joint, that nothing else would move. So, so this knife is it's just, it's, it's very striking, yeah, a big blur into the, into the devil's guts. Yeah, so that's very impressive. That's the go motion, really worth lo looking out for that. It's almost like Toy Story, isn't it? They sort of acknowledge that they're not, that they are smaller creatures or they are glasses or my favourite character, who's not really a character in the film, but the balloon, the balloon. who's having a drink. And that, I guess that's another example of actually filming... Uh, you know, uh, not being stop motion because the balloon, of course, pops. And it's such a fun idea. The balloon's having a drink. He drinks too much. Yeah. Explodes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just made me chuckle yeah. when I was watching <laughs> that. Gross. It was really, really inventive. There's another balloon playing the saxophone. Do you remember that one? <laughs> and, and, and that goes the other way. That As, as he plays, they let, he's let the air out. So as the, as the balloon blows, presuming to the saxophone, he, he shrinks and diminishes. Inside his trousers, he's wearing baggy trousers like a clown, and, and the trousers stay there, but the balloon inside shrinks. I mean, it's just, it's, just the, it's, the, it's the invention, the prodigious invention. The fact that he's animating all these different characters at once, I mean, that's a again, another technical thing. You know, animating one character is a challenge, but animating 15 different characters all dancing is a spectacular challenge. It feels to me joyous, you know, 
darkly joyous as a film. Yeah, celebration of the form, uh, I, I think as well, and, and and still you know still feels fresh today. And and yeah, I, I think I've, I've read a few interviews in researching for this. You know, other directors citing Terry Gilliam says he's a big fan, and Wes Anderson uh, says he's a big fan. Henry Selleck, you know, okay, so obviously yeah. having a big. And I guess you can see that in the dark sort of animation style of Nightmare Before Christmas yes, with, with Henry Selleck yeah, and yeah, Coraline yeah, yeah. and that sort of stuff. Yes, I mean it's, it's real pioneering stuff. It really is, and. And yet, as you said, still looks quite contemporary. And, and in, its, in its mad bravery, uh, it's ahead of its... You know, like we haven't caught up yet. You know, no, no one else has animated with such mad bravery as he, as he did, I think. Hello, I'm Martin. I'm Sam, and together we host Song by Song, a show about the music of Tom Waits. So you're listening to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival right now, but guess what? We're part of the same network, Stripped Media. In fact, we did a crossover episode with Sam and Louise where we talked about Wrist Cutters, A Love Story, the only film Tom Waits appears in that's less than 90 minutes long. Uh, we've both been on the show. We've both been on 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, so True. do check that out as well. But if you'd like to hear the 90 Minutes crew thoughts on Tom Waits and culture in general, take a look at songbysongpodcast.com or search Song by Song wherever you find podcasts. When you mentioned, you know, there's so many different things I used to animate, you know, uh, real life items and, and specially made models. And it feels very complicated. Towards the end, there's a, there's a, but the ballerina was a dancing and there's two spiders in spider webs. Mm. Very intricate. Yeah. Th- those models are, are, are so wonderful. There's loads of things like that that you, one looks at and thinks, how, you know, how on earth? How on earth was that achieved? Like, I, I literally can't, I can't imagine the model that you would make to achieve that, you know, or, or how, or how it, it keep everything still you know, the, and and you know because they are clearly made from the elaborate ones like like the, the street tough is made from chamois leather i think oh, well, yeah. i would think his face is I, I would guess very soft leather but then there's a character made of straw you know or, and the character made of glass and the character you know um made of waste paper extraordinary yeah have you got a, a favourite sort of sequence or, or a scene in this film, uh, one that you sort of direct people to? Oh, blimey. Um, I suppose, on, on, I think, honestly, that moment with the, the streets tough, I think, and the devil and the ballerina, they're all together. I mean, there's all sorts of unholy menage a trois things going on, <laughs> yes. where there's also a, mon- a monkey also features in, oh, yeah. in there, a, a very malign monkey. <laughs> I mean, the moment when the, the street tough shoves his hand down the monkey's throat, I can't think what he's... I can't think what he's pulling out now, but that opens his throat, pushes his hand right down inside. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but that that little scene, which, which is is sort of, um, it's probably seventy five percent of the way through as you're approaching the, the the climax of the party. So why do I point to that? I think above all, it's that guy. It's that tough. It's that tough guy with his cap, and he has he does a thing where he rolls a cigarette butt across his big. Big wide mouth, you know, it's just, it's very very strong, and he's it, that's a beautiful puppet. I mean, it's a really smashing puppet they made there. For me, it's the cat. I love. I, I've got two oh, cats at home myself. Yeah, the, cat. uh, the cat's very authentic. You know, I, I love. They've they've obviously studied you know how cats move, and they've made that amazing puppet. And it's playing with a ball at one point. It's rolling on its back. It interacts with the dog. And this film is very fantastical. But there's some of the uh, the movements are grounded in reality. And I think with the cats, they've really sort of studied that that movement and nailed yes. it. But she's got quite. She's got quite a mischievous if not actually evil look in her, her eye, isn't she? Like, like, uh, 
it makes it makes I'm sorry to, to complete um, tangent, but um, because it rather interests me, the very early animation interests me very much. Puppet animation because it's quite rare. There's a guy called Charlie Bowers. Have you heard of Charlie Not Bowers? Really. He was he's a, um, a silent comedian. So of so in the twenties. With if Buster Keaton's at the top of the ladder, I guess Charlie Bowers is somewhere down the lower the lower rungs. But a bit of stop motion was his thing as well. So he a bit of an innovator. So in his films, he's got some stop motion animation that takes place. It was the cat that made me think of it actually, <laughs> because there's one film where a live action character cuts some pussy willow, sticks it in a vase, put, uh, puts on some magic gunge. And from the little pussy willow flowers or seed heads, whatever they are, grows cats. And I'm afraid to say that many cats must have died in the making of this film. I think <laughs> he must have got he must because they're real they're real stuffed cats. Blimey, he's wow. got, they got. <laughs> and, and so there's an extraordinary scene where they where they where they grow. I don't like to think actually how, how it was achieved, but it's very impre- it's extraordinary. And um, no, it's a pretty damn fine effect a couple of shots where they actually animated these stuffed cats fairly well fairly well then there's an absolutely hilarious shot where where somebody goes to open the door and in live action someone behind the door throws about 30 cats at them so you've got, so you've got, you've got a, a live actor opens the door and all these cats come flying anyway but that's that's by the way i was kidding we're here to recommend films and and i think in the in the show notes we'll link to uh, to some more of your recommendations because a uh, little it's a good history lesson i think in, in some <laughs> early animation projects i'm really pleased to officially induct uh, Fetish 3312 into our Under 90 Minutes Less Film Festival. It's going to be screening alongside some amazing stop-motion animations that we've got already, including Fantastic Mr. Fox and The Nightmare Before Christmas and Chicken Run. Uh, I think that'll be a lovely, you know, the stop-motion animation tent uh, or, or whatever we do at this festival here. <laughs> as part of your commitment as curator, guest curator at this festival, I'd, I'd love to, to ask, you know, what's your ideal sort of cinema setting or, or if not a cinema, you know, a, a pop-up screen somewhere? Where would you like to show Fetish 3312? I think I'll go to a small festival that I've attended in Montone in Umbria. And uh, so Montone is a classic Italian hill town with a big wall around it, big gate, fortified hill town, very beautiful. And in the festival, they did one of those things where they showed it in the town square. And the town square is quite small, not not a fetish, but they should do. Mm. Uh, they showed <laughs> films in the town square. And, you know, there's a van parked in one corner with a projector on it, and there's a sheet stretched across in the opposite corner, and people sit around at tables drinking wine, and as the light goes down, um, watching films, which I must say, I got to say, I love those kind of festivals. I, I abs- I'm a sucker for those. I went years ago. I think, actually, Terry Gilliam has something to do with it. I think he's a, a patron of it, at least, and has been a visitor many times. I went many years ago, and and there was a certain amount of um, people in medieval costumes striding around, and, and I was given the key to the city, and it was all very wonderful. So, Montone every time. Okay, so we've got our setting. Obviously, when you go to the cinema, you might want a snack or a drink. Do you have a go-to uh, serving suggestion <laughs> <laughs> with Fetish 3312? Oh, crummy. Oh, yes. What should, we, what should we say? What should we say? Uh, 
a plate of escargot perhaps would be would be the would be the thing. Although probably some escargot appear in the film. I can't remember if they <laughs> that do. That might be a bit too surreal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yes. Yes, and yeah, yeah yes. And a cold beer. Yeah. When you go to the cinema, do you enjoy a, a, a drink or a snack? Oh, seldom, actually, seldom. A bit of beer, actually, sometimes these, day, these days. Um, I don't, but I don't eat. But taking us right back to Chicken Run, I always remember that when we were working with DreamWorks and we were doing test screenings of films, which, by the way, is a horrifying thing to do, uh, and we uh, we do test screenings at uh, suburban cinemas around the the greater Los Angeles area, some small town somewhere. And um, and Jeffrey Katzenberg was always there, the very, the very hands-on um, head then, no longer. And he would always insist on grabbing popcorn because for him, being American, the two just went together. You, know, you, you couldn't, you, you almost couldn't consider sitting down in the in the theatre without having popcorn. Which I've never, no, I don't really care about popcorn very much, no. And finally, because this is a special screening, it's a special festival, uh, if you were to invite uh, someone to maybe introduce the film or, or have a Q&A with afterwards, who would you like to like to hear from uh, alongside watching Fetish 3312? Well, I, obviously, I hadn't thought about that, but, but you, have, you have suggested to me Terry Gilliam because, because it, there's a very clear line, I would say, between, between the two. It'd be great for it, yeah. I think that'd be great. I think anything that helps, uh, you know, get people, new audiences in to watch this film. Uh, yeah, like I a mean, that's why, I, you know, that's why I've put it forward for the festival because I thought no it's it's, it's less obvious um, as I say it, it it's not like most films you know it, it although it delivers with sincerity and heart so so, it, so in that sense it is it's just that <laughs> in the, the middle section is the long middle section is, is make, just magnificently self-indulgent I think you know and uh, it's unfamiliar to people I think people I think and hope people will be blown away by it I, I, I think you're right I, I feel like you know a lot of people watch films for entertainment and this is in, you know an incredibly entertaining film and I think it delivers well there we go well I, thank you so much Pete for bringing Fetish 3312 and, and for also creating so many great under 90 minute films uh, yourself and, and a big thank you for having me in Ardman it's so nice to be here a bit of a dream come true great pleasure sir Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.